You're listening to a Westpac Wire podcast. Westpacwire.com.au incredible piece of music we've just been listening to was composed and performed by acclaimed musician Dr Lou Bennett who you heard there with the Australian String Quartet. The song has a remarkable and personal story behind it gifted to Lou by her Jara family and is a great example of the way Lou shares stories through song to revitalize Aboriginal languages. Her work is something that not only she is passionate about, but it's considered so important and special that it's seen her accepted as a postdoctoral research fellow at the University of Melbourne with the backing of a Westpac Research Fellowship. She was appointed a member of the Order of Australia last year. She was inducted into the Victorian Women's Honour Roll and so many other accolades. I'm Emma Foster from Westpac Wire and I feel incredibly fortunate to be joined by Dr Lou Bennett today to have a chat about her work and the journey that's led her here. Lou, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you very much, Emma. I'm very happy to be here. Lou, can we start uh, by hearing from you about the story behind that wonderfully powerful song that we just heard? Certainly. Uh, before we start, I will acknowledge that I am on Jara country. So, Womanjika, Womanjika, Jaraja. Welcome to Jara country or Jajawaran country, which is the country of my ancestors. And I'm here in a little place called Malmesbury in Victoria. So the story comes from this country that I'm now streaming from. And it was a story that was told to me by my Auntie Faye and my cousin Wendy, my Auntie Faye being my mum's oldest sister. And they also see, saw the need to, well, first of all, tell our stories to, to keep them alive within our families. But they specifically told me this story because they wanted to see a song in language come from this story to to honour uh, this ancestor uh, who had been found uh, by a young farmer, a non-Aboriginal um, man back in the early 1900s. And so the story goes uh, that he was felling trees for farming and the tree came down and out of the hollow a little bundle uh, appeared. He opened up a cloak, a possum skin cloak, and there was a little um, baby deceased. 
and he, of course he took it to what he thought were the authorities. He didn't take it back to the Aboriginal community. He took it to the police and, and asserting that it wasn't any kind of untoward business and it wasn't a homicide. Uh, he, then they took it to the next line of, uh, of authority in Western, in their, in, you know, of course, the Western law, which was the museum. And she stayed there for nearly 100 years. I think it was 99 years in a cold drawer, steel metal drawer alone, until my family found her. And they found her through the means of talking and searching for of course, for bones and to be repatriated. In our communities, we constantly are searching for our old people in these institutions. Um, much of our bones were, of our old people were stolen uh, for science, and I'll do little quotation marks, scientific uh, um, studies and and to research the Aborigine, what they constructed as the Aborigine. So anyway, they they found her, and that was driven by another cousin of mine, Gary Murray. Uh, he was quite instrumental in finding her, and eventually they brought her home here to Jaraja, and they uh, prepared her um, properly, which meant they gave her a new possum skin to be wrapped in and they put her amongst the treetops in a uh, non-disclosed location so it's a secret location and she's still there she's still there resting amongst the treetops uh, as part of her burial and and that was how our old people buried certain people probably most m most of our old people were um, honored in their passing over in that way, bringing them up into the treetops uh, to listen to the ancestors and to become part of that ancestor and the ancestor's voice on the wind. Juwandak Balag, meaning old people. Uh, so I created this song with the help of my extraordinary uh, co-arranger and um, my colleague Ian Grandage. Ian used to run a beautiful festival, which still goes, um, called the Port Ferry Spring Festival. Not the Port Ferry Folk Festival, not to be confused with that one, but the Spring Festival, which looked and focused more on classical music. It happens, of course, in spring over October. And he had a program called Quartet and Country, where he would bring two Aboriginal or Indigenous uh, composers together with the Australian String Quartet and so uh, he had asked me to, to join with Stephen Pigram who is another wonderful um, Indigenous artist, Yarrow Man from up Broomway and the two of us wrote a piece over in South Australia sponsored um, by an amazing foundation over there, Ukaria or Ukaria and we performed that uh, in October, um, it must have been four years ago, three years ago now, um, in October, uh, for the Spring Festival. And since then, I've performed it all over Australia with the String Quartet, and it continues. It continues to be um, sung and used, and uh, it, it tells a beautiful story of 
Jara Nilamum and Jara meaning our tribe, Nilamum meaning babies, Jara baby. That was her name that they they brought her home and called her the Jara baby. I call her Jara Nilamum because Nilamum is the word for baby in Jajawara. Such a remarkable story and a, and a beautiful song. I wonder, did, did your aunties who passed that story on to you, did they get a chance to also hear that? And, and, and what was their reaction? Yes, they did, of course. And that is part of my process is to involve, you know, our community, our family when I'm writing. Uh, maybe not all the way through uh, at, at this stage of my um, of my compositions, of my career, but it's important to always co go back and consult and, and ask and not so much asking for for permission because as Jara people, as Yorta Yorta people or Indigenous people, we all have the right to practice our culture. It's more about the acknowledgement that it is a collective and that we're acknowledging our old people and our elders and senior members and community members to say, hey, this is what I'm doing with our, our language that is part of us. We have a relationship with that language uh, and it is, it is part of each of us. So that process is important that we take it back to our old people for them to listen to so they understand what we're doing. So that was my process. I wrote the song, I recorded it, and I sent it back to uh, Mayani Faye and to Wendy and to other members of my family as well so they could hear what I was doing with the language uh, and so they could enjoy it as well to be able to, uh, to listen and to learn and to learn through song which is what my research is all about. As a kid growing up in Echuca in Victoria, did you have Yorta Yorta language or Jara language around you, the different languages around you? And can you remember when you maybe started to think about the importance of language? Mm. Yeah, we had language around us, but not fluently. There were words and phrases and uh, that were brought into our vernacular, into our daily, daily lives. Uh, there were songs, of course, that were sung, which were held with such great... Um, oh, with, with just with greatness and with great pride and great um, care because these were, you know, these were the, the pieces of the jigsaw puzzle, of the language jigsaw puzzle that, um, you know, has come about now, people bringing the language together. And so I, I realised at a very young age that, you know, I loved language. I loved learning other people's language. It made me think in a different way. Even in primary school and secondary school, I remember the first French classes, having our French class, and it was one. It was a a wonderful synchronicity, synchronicity that my mum and my dad, for the first time when I was twelve years old, they saved money to have a honeymoon because they never got to have a honeymoon when when they were married back in 1968 when I came along uh, and they'd saved that money and they took their two daughters on their honeymoon with them and we went over to New Caledonia and I remember learning French 
at school and thinking, this is great. I'm going to a French speaking colony. I can use what I, you know, what I've learned. And, and I did, I used what I learned. I was, you know, I was able to order a coffee for my mum or a Coca-Cola for my sister or, you know, those sorts of things. Say thank you and thank you very much and au revoir and bonjour, all of those little things that are, were were really important. And I noticed the people over there really appreciated me speaking or even just attempting to speak. Uh, and then, of course, later on in my travels with Titters, um, we travelled all over the world. If we were going to a new country that we'd never been to, they were the things that I would learn with all the simple pol politities like saying hello, when to say hello, uh, being able to answer yes or no and please. Uh, and it was really, I suppose, in the Titters moments that I, I the light bulb went off. Um, and again, my big cousin, Wendy, she had um, given me a tape of our great grandmother speaking language. And this was Yorta Yorta language. Uh, and I remember it was a NADOC event and I was supposed to perform. I did perform, but I got on stage late because I, she gave me the cassette tape and I ran to my car. I was so excited. I said, you're gonna just have to wait five minutes. I just wanna hear my great grandmother's voice. And I put the, tape on and I just started to cry. I, it, it hit me. I realized, hold on a minute, I've been told all my life by non-Aboriginal people, ah, forget about your culture, forget about your language, it's dead, it's, you know, it's irrelevant now, that was in the past, this is now, you have to learn our ways. Well, that was an epiphany for me in the car at a NADOC event over in Footscray in Melbourne, listening to my great grandmother saying, that means where are you going? And telling the story of how, how this story had come about of, of those, of that term, and so I took all of those terms that she had said on the tape and I put it together and I created the song and it has recorded that on our second last album. And it was that moment, it was that moment, Emma, that made me think, well, if I can write one song, I can write many, many more songs. And since that time in the mid nineties, people have called on me constantly to say, Lou, can you come and help us write a song in language? Can you come and help us write a song and then in English and then we'll see if we can turn it into language. And so these processes started to happen where I was drawn away from the the main big stage on, you know, festivals and, and that kind of singing and brought back into communities. And this is where I find myself in a very happy place working with uh, Aboriginal communities all over Australia. So that that was really the, the start of the work that you've gone on with. Through mm. that process, have you learnt a lot about Aboriginal languages? Have you been surprised by what you've learnt? Absolutely, Emma. And I think also coming from my perspective and my worldview as a Yorta Yorta Jajawaran woman, uh, I can see 
there's wonderful things about linguistics, but there's also very inadequate things about the structure of linguistics, the standardization of our languages, the, the labels that they put on our languages. For instance, in the linguistic community, our languages, First Nation languages, Aboriginal languages, Indigenous languages, these are all, again, Western constructs, but still now they're called Australian languages. To me, that's very wrong. I don't believe that that's the right term. And if there is a term in English that we could use, that's definitely not the term that we should be using because we are prior to Australia. We are pre existing before Australia. So we're first languages. And I think that would be a more appropriate term to call our languages. And look, there's a lot of other uh, issues there. And this is why my research for me is so important, is to look at Eurolinguistics and to go over it with a fine tooth comb to see where we can utilise linguistics for the benefit of our language but we've also got to identify the problematic areas and the inadequacies that can cause misinterpretations cause bad pronunciation can can disconnect us from our country because our languages come directly from our country they are place specific so your, that's why Yorta Yorta language is different to Wemba Wemba, is different to Jajawarang, is different to Mari Mari and Tari Tari and Wadi Wadi, is different to Pratangalang and Kartangalang and Ganai Kurnai languages. This is why our languages are so different because they are place specific. And yes, of course, there are connections because the land is connected. There's no harsh boundary or fence or divide that that goes deep into the ground but there are landmarks and there are land changes and land formations that tell us when our languages change so if we look at the land we look at the country we can see where our languages belong and where they rise from and uh, so for me that's the way I like to look at my language not through a linguistic lens of verb, noun, pronoun, ergative, imperative, not with those scientific um, and Eurocentric values, but to look at them through an Indigenous standpoint, uh, coming from an Indigenous standpoint and coming from an Indigenous worldview. And our languages, as I said, and I remember I said in my, um, my presentation to the Westpac Foundation, is that our law, our very law, Indigenous law, came up from the ground in, a, in the form of song. The first creation wasn't the word, the first creation was sound. And it was the sound of law rising from the very earth that we are on now. And you just mentioned quite a few different uh, first languages. I think um, there may be some people out there that are the surprised to learn that there are so many different languages. And I, I think it would be great um, to hear maybe a little bit more context around that in terms of do we know how many languages there, there still are around the country um, and how many have you been able to get in touch with and, and how many remain to be able to be revitalised? 
Look, I, a part of that is, and that's again a part of my worldview or my perspective, I believe that language is there waiting for us. I don't believe in, again, the terms of a dead language or a dying language or an, a nearly extinct language. I think these kinds of definitions and, and perceptions or mindsets uh, can stop us from looking. So if I go back to my past and I, and I, if I was to believe, which I did for a very long time, believe the voices of people who don't understand our language and where it comes from or languages, then I would have stopped looking. Uh, so it's all, it is about persistence and patience and resilience and looking for something bigger and uh, uh, more in depth listening is the really important thing for me it's listening to what you can't see not just the tangible the intangible and our languages are intangible unless they're written down or unless they're recorded um, so to they they believe i'll say they um talking about uh the likes of uh iatsis and um other you know bureau of statistics say there's around about 250 languages i believe there's more simply because within the languages the way that language is structured within a linguistic um, uh, structure or value is that there is a mother language like mother tongue and then what offshoots from that are dialects or sub-languages as they're often referred to as well. These are, for me, art languages. They're another way of speaking. Within our, again, in, within the context of our law, we have languages that are for women. We have languages that are for men. We have general languages. We have languages that only old men speak when someone has passed away. So language, there are so many complexities to language, just like our kinship laws that it's all connected um, and it's you know one isn't more important than the other it's like a it's like a big old yam plant that stretches across the earth it's not like a tree or a family tree which is how the the eurocentric value uh, look at our language with like a family tree from the top down we don't it spreads across the earth so it's, yeah, so about 250 languages uh, pre-invasion and about 120 to 130 languages are spoken and that are being revived today. Um, and again, uh, these are statistics that I don't necessarily believe fully, but what I do use them as, as, as a sign of there needs to be work, there needs to be more love and, ten and attention and nurturing and care placed and finance placed within our languages. I was listening to a, uh, a presentation by VACL, which is the Victorian Aboriginal Corporation of Languages. I think it's corporation, yeah. And one of their uh, presenters, Vicky Cousins, Dr. Cousins, was talking about the amount of uh, money that gets poured into uh, something like wine export around 51 52 million dollars gets poured into wine export alone yet for the whole nation of those 250 languages around half of that less something like 20 million uh, 
is put aside for Aboriginal languages. So it tells us that our government do not value our languages or our culture. And so it is up to us and it's up to other, other Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people and communities and with our allies, non-Aboriginal people, to come together to support us to bring those languages back. Because what will happen when we do bring our languages back, as we have seen, we have the evidence to see, is the amount of well-being, uh, confidence building, competence in literacy and numeracy skills for young people, uh, competency in social gatherings and um, and and careers and so there's we can see that there is huge amounts of benefit for Australians to support us in gathering that language back but we do have to take the right steps to do that and a lot of people will ask me well what about you know teaching it in schools for example and I, I, that can be a bit problematic, um, firstly, because we want to be able to have our own people, our own Aboriginal people teaching those languages. Um, otherwise, we then step back into the old anthropological white person is the expert and we are learning about ourselves from a non-Aboriginal person. So I think it's important that we make the right steps, we put in place the right procedures and protocols so that those languages, especially down here in Victoria in, in the southern areas of, of uh, Australia, have a chance to grow and to nurture within their own communities first before they're fully shared in schools un, you know, as curriculum or you know within within that educational context Music is incredibly important in the way you approach your work um, so putting stories told in language to song and music is clearly a big part of your DNA so if we have a little look at your musical career uh, it really took off in the 1990s um, although I think that you were singing from a very young age but in the 1990s you, you joined Sally Dasty and Amy Saunders to form the trio called Titus which you have mentioned can you tell us a bit about how the band came to be and, and maybe even the meaning behind, when we're talking about languages, the meaning behind the name Titus? Yeah, sure. Look, it's, this year was Titus' 30th birthday. We call it a birthday, not an anniversary, because Titus had her own, she's her own entity. <laughs> uh, but the three of us often will ring each other on August the 10th um, to say happy birthday to Titters. And us, actually, it's the four of us because it's our old manager, Jill Shelton, who now manages uh, Archie Roach. And the, the three of us, four of us, and our last engineer, Janine Temme, we travelled the world together. So it was five women, even though we had other... Um, you know, other crew and, and people with us, like Dylan Hughes, who was a great sound engineer for us, uh, and other people that, you know, worked with us. The five of us travelled the world together. 
and we joined a much larger band back in the in the late 80s and I came on as a rhythm guitarist I wasn't singing at that time um, I was performing with my uncle's band actually in Melbourne we were a cover band called the shades and they used to play even before I was born and then they of course went off and had families and got their um, careers and then they came back 25 years later and they said you know sin because they call me sin sin come and join us on stage let's um we want to get the band back shades back and you can play rhythm guitar and you can play the keyboard and and sing the backing vocals and play harmonica so i was <laughs> i was the the uh the multitasker in the band and at one particular gig we done at the great eastern hotel in melbourne down in fitzroy um, this scruffy looking fella came in and his hair was everywhere. He had oil all up this white t-shirt and he went to the bar and he grabbed a beer and he sat up the back and he watched us perform. And then at the end he came up and he said, uh, would you consider joining my band? And I said, I don't, who are you? I don't know who you are. And he said, my name's Richard Franklin. And I went, oh, okay. Anyway, I, I eventually did. I joined his band, which was called Jambi. And we performed um, for about 18 months. I was with that band. And that's where I met the girls. Sally Dasty, Amy Saunders and Charmaine Clark at that time were all the backing vocals. So they had the three women backing vocals. They had me on rhythm guitar. They had a lead guitarist. They had, we, we had brass, we had the bass player, we had the drummer and Richard was up the front and the band was called Jambi. And Jambi in our languages means brother or you know friend brother in the male terms so it was interesting that there were four women in the group called Jambi but anyway we were there <laughs> and we started to sing together you know rehearse together um, and when they realized that I could sing uh, the girl said well why don't you come on and start singing so I did and then of course um, Aboriginal people from the community down in Collingwood 3CR for instance asked us to come and do a show called Hot Jam Cookin'. And we did, we, we pulled together a couple of songs, Inside My Kitchen being one of them, one of the very first songs I wrote. And we performed them and they were, before we got to the performance, they'd asked us, so, so what are you gonna call yourselves? And we were like, oh, we don't know, just, we, can't, we, were, we were racking our brains and we just couldn't come up with something that felt right. And we all loved our food and coffee. At one point we were going to be three short blacks and a flat white. And was, <laughs> no, we better, we better not call ourselves. <laughs> uh, at one point, and then at one point we just said, well, why don't we just call ourselves women from Jami? And the wonderful late Ruby Hunter approached us and said, I can't call you women from Jambi. That doesn't make sense. Women from brothers. That doesn't make sense. You're my titters. And we went, oh, of course. And it stuck. And we still get called titters, even though, you know, we disbanded in 2000. Um, people still call us titters. Okay. And titters means sisters. 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 So over 10 years or so, I think Titters uh, was together, although you still celebrate the birthday, which I love. 
And I think you released three studio albums. You were nominated for heaps of arias. You, you got a gong in 1994, I read. You, you <laughs> toured, as you said. You played alongside musical royalty like Bob Geldof and Joe Camilleri and Archie Roach, who you mentioned, and, and Midnight Oil. And last year, around 20 years after you played the last gig, Titus was inducted into the National Indigenous Music Awards Hall of Fame. Finally. <laughs> so I, I wonder how, how did it feel to you to be recognised in that way, for Titters to be recognised in that way? It was a good feeling, Emma. It You know, you sort of forget about those sorts of accolades as you're doing it because you just get out and do it, you know. It's part of our job. It was part of our career. It was what we wanted to do. It was what we wanted to make, you know, that was our living uh, so then when those sorts of things come along later down the track, it's a real testament to the work that you do and the work that you put in. You know, I remember in the early years, um, Amy and I used to live together and Sally basically lived with us. She'd go home to sleep and that, <laughs> and sometimes not even. <laughs> we would spend days locked in little three Lawrence Street in Brunswick, uh, writing songs and sitting up late into the wee hours hours and just playing and and enjoying each other's voices and trying different things and going to see mu other music together um yeah so that it was quite an intense time and we knew that we had something beautiful because it made us all feel so amazing when we sung together and we stuck with it and we refined it and it was um yeah, it was a lot of hard work. It, I've had so many jobs, Emma. Um, I started work at a very early age. I think I was about um, eight or nine when I first started working with my mum and my dad in the fields, in the orchards, um, up on the Murray River, picking fruit. And of course, I wasn't paid, but I was there in those moments, that, you know, as a very young person, but in those packing sheds, that was where I first earned my first wage, packing grapefruit and oranges. And so from a packer, fruit packer, to, you know, a, um, a checkout chick, to a cleaner, to a babysitter, to, oh, to all sorts of things, this job as a musician and as a touring musician was the, the hardest job I've ever done, but it's the most, it has been one of the most rewarding jobs as well. You mentioned Inside My Kitchen, which was the first song, I believe, that, that really made Titus um, come to notice. And I just wanted to play a little snippet of that now. Come inside into my kitchen Settle and I will listen to the problems that you find in this world in which we leave. I've got time to give. I'm a town. Na 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 Lou, listening to that inside my kitchen, what memories does that bring back for you? Goodness gracious. <laughs> 
Well, firstly, the reason why I wrote the song is uh, my partner at the time um, ha- was going through psychosis, and so and it was the first time that I was ever close to someone that was dealing with mental health issues and and, you know I was terrified and I I didn't know what was going on and there wasn't even really that much support but there was one woman and I remember her name being Sally and she was a psych nurse and thankfully she was there with us to to help me get through what was going on and um, with with my partner at that time and uh, and I remember then just sitting down at the kitchen table and came up with the chords. I enjoyed them I, and I hummed along and, and that song just flowed out of me. And it was a wonderful release. It was even cathartic to get that out, to, to sing that song. And um, then I taught it to the titters. Um, I, I took a little book. I had a little book of poetry, songs and poetry that I had written when I was studying for my Bachelor of Arts in Education over at Deakin University. And and I remember uh, taking this little book and thinking, well, if I, if I can turn that poem into a song, I could turn all these poems into songs. And I did. And so the first lot of songs that you hear on Inside My Kitchen, the EP, is, uh, is a lot of the work that I've done. Uh, except for Happy Earth and My Brother. So those songs by your side, Corey Woman and Inside My Kitchen, they were my first three songs I ever wrote. And I continued to write, of course, and uh, write about what I saw. But I do remember teaching the girls this song and they were just, we just sang it and sang it and sang it. Uh, and again, with we started to write then for ourselves and Happy Earth, I think was one of the very first recorded uh, compositions that we'd shared that we you know the shared writing of we were that happy with it and so excited about it we got on the phone on the blower to all of our mums and told them you know have a listen to this and we sang the song three times separately <laughs> for each mum and you know, of course mums oh that's lovely dear you know that's that good on you love good keep keep doing it you know? so yeah we were young and we were excited about sharing our music and sharing our voices and and being able to write music that was relevant to us and you were quite uh, a trailblazer, I suppose, in, in terms of Indigenous musicians really ripping it up in the Australian music scene in the 1990s. Um, I wonder, do you agree with that? And, and do you think that that was in, in those years that, that you were um, very active, um, that it was a bit of a turning point for Indigenous artists in the mainstream? I'm not, look, it's hard to say when you're in it, when mm. you're know within that within that but I do remember so many young women and men approaching us and just saying you your your music has changed my life and they still do 30 years later Emma I still get people saying your music 
changed my life. Your music was there for me when I was going through depression or through a hard time or your music was there when I fell in love with my my husband or wife and or you know your music has been passed down now to my children. Yesterday I did a uh, a, a Zoom with um, two prospective Westpac um, fellows hopefully fingers crossed for them and one of them had said to me I just want to, at the end of our discussions I just want to say Lou that my daughter came home and taught me or was singing in Ane and which is one of the one of our songs that we're well known for as well and for me I just oh it just it brightens my world when I know that the people or their mothers or their grandparents have come to see us perform, have passed that music down and have shared that music with their family and the legacy of Titters will continue. That's beautiful. And finally, Lou, a lot of people will be celebrating NADOC week. Um, it was po postponed this year, but a pandemic cannot stop it. Um, I wanted to ask you, what does NADOC mean to you and, and will you be doing anything special to celebrate? I often, well, I used to, I used to work every single day. I, there was time where I was doing two to three shows a day for the whole of NADOC. I don't do that anymore. <laughs> Thank goodness. <laughs> that wears me out. I'll do maybe uh, a, a couple of um, appearances, but for the most time, it's now for me, it's a time of reflection a time to sit with my family and to enjoy family time. And when I say family, Emma, I'm not just talking about my human family. I'm talking about my non-human family. I'm talking about the landscape, walking the country, sitting by the river, listening to the wind, uh, taking time to rejuvenate because the work that myself and my partner, Dr. Romaine Morton, what we do is really big work. So we take that time to uh, reflect and to honour our ancestors. Um, for instance, people say, Happy NADOC, and it's, it, it, there's something not quite right about um, being happy about a day of observance and a day of mourning. It's um, and I understand why people want to celebrate because we want to celebrate our survival. We want to celebrate our beautiful culture, but we also have to keep in mind what the day was and why it was created in the first place by the likes of my family members like my uncle William Cooper, Arnie Marge Tucker, Uncle Sir Doug Nichols, um, Uncle Bill Ferguson. These uh, elders and ancestors now. Uh, they demanded human rights for Aboriginal people and they created the National Aboriginal Islander Day Observance Committee for the Day of Mourning. That's what NADOC stands for. It's not National Aboriginal Islander Day of Celebration. So over the years it has changed and mob get dressed up and they go to the NADOC ball and mob come together and they have special events and you know uh, good good luck to them for doing that and, and I applaud them for doing that but I also want to remind people and to remind our allies, to remind non-Aboriginal people this celebration is also a mourning that we're 
we we have to continue to acknowledge what our old people went through they went through traumatic traumatic experiences for the development of australia and we still have to recognize that and this is not about blaming anyone individually it's about honoring our old people just like the anzacs honor uh we we honor the anzacs we also honor our old people who fought for this country. Wow, what wonderful words to end on. Lou, it's been such a joy to talk to you today. I could listen to you all day. I've learned so much from you. So thank you. I'd love to end today with the last few bars of another incredible song that I've heard you perform with the Australian String Quartet. So I'll play them now, but thank you so much again for joining me today. You're so welcome, Emma, and I thoroughly enjoyed the time today with you. Hey, <laughs> 